are so good. I'm so excited to talk to you. Well, you're going to get to talk to me for quite a while. I am. So I think the first question I want to know is a is a question I've actually never known the answer to in all my years of knowing you, which is, oh God, what was your actual official job at Meadows? Oh, uh, well, I came 1970, and I was hired as the child drama specialist. Okay. And I was going to teach a course in children's theater and maybe direct a little, although they weren't that big on that. And I was going to teach a creative drama course for people in the department and for people outside. There was a big education department then. There was education, um, speech and hearing disorders, and a deaf education program in the art school. I was also hired to work with a program in the art school. It was a wondrous program, and it taught me, it began to teach me how to teach. There was a program called the Experimental Arts Program. It was run by a woman in art education named Anne McGee, and it was all over the building and all over the city. She was everywhere in classes. Mm -hmm. We would get called by the West Dallas Community Center, Charlie, do you want to do this? I'd say, of course. And so I would take a group of five or six for eight sessions at the West Dallas Community Center. And there was South Dallas Community Center, and there were churches everywhere. And so I was dealing with populations. I mean, I'm from a small town in Wisconsin. I did not have a very diverse upbringing in terms of the kids I was working with. But with her, I was in the whole Dallas community, and it was my job to take all of these kids at SMU out into the real Dallas community, not just the Park Cities. I mean, there's nothing we would turn down. Uh, we got a call from the Highland Park Methodist Church down in the corner, and they had a class of what they called children who'd been rubella babies. There'd been a big rubella outbreak in Dallas in the mid-60s. And the children born then whose mothers had rubella and they had rubella before they were born, many of them born with profound problems. Uh, children 10 years old, deaf and blind. And, and most of them were deaf and blind to varying degrees. I'd never worked with that population, but neither had their teachers. So everything was a learning how to teach and solving problems. And the teacher said, we don't know how to get them to play together because they're not aware of each other. And so one of the students I was working with said, why don't you tie them together? And, <sighs> and so we worked out, we, had, we brought ace bandages in and attached them. And at first it was kind of annoying but then the ace bandages and something on the end of it that responded got to be what their play was all about. And they'd never experienced that. Whoa. And so they would be wandering around outside with someone rather than alone. And uh, so we, we learned a lot from every place we were put where we'd never had those experiences. And, and everywhere that I was put I was a brand new experience for me. Dallas itself was a real learning experience. It was like a foreign country to me. I, I didn't know Dallas. I was warned, you know, people, I said, well, I'm 
getting a job down at SMU in Dallas. Oh, that's where Kennedy was shot. Uh-huh. It was like, right. And so people, oh, that's, oh, that's scary. And and it, it was and it wasn't. I mean, we had adopted an interracial child who was two years old when we got to Dallas. That was against the law in Texas. Really? When we moved here. We didn't know that the interracial adoption didn't happen here. And so we were looked at as very strange in the grocery store and in church and and lots of other places. It's much more commonplace now and the world's much more open. But but yeah, that was that was a strange, unusual happening. Um I had very long I had very long hair when <laughs> I came down to Dallas. I, I was a hippie looking guy. I would drive my old junky car into the park cities and I would be followed to campus because mm. initially I had a Wisconsin license plate on and I didn't look like Highland Park. And so and you know, you just got used to things like that. Um but it was it was jarring initially. And then we just got to really enjoy Dallas and it's it's a good city. I'm just thinking about the my time at SMU being like a, a weirdos meadows kid. Um the population didn't always necessarily look like Highland Park either. Mm. That tension has that always been there? Has it changed over time, the relationship of being well, like a Meadows community versus the Park Cities community? No, I mean to a certain extent the Meadows community being its own community was a, a drawing card. And I think art schools that are really art schools are kind of like that. And us against them is kind of a way arts people function or think anyway. Uh, some of them functioned very well outside, but many didn't. Many found the freshman dorm to be the most painful part of being in the university and couldn't wait to get out of it. Others, adapted. And the university changed gradually, you know, slow and steady wins the race. Um, you know, I, re- I remember one year, this was oh, 25, 30 years ago. Um, I had won an award for outstanding blah, blah, blah at the end of the year. And just about that time, the gay and student organization on campus was trying to be recognized as a legitimate organization Hmm. and had been resoundly voted down and booed as they left the hall. And that had made the news. I was sitting at home and Karen said, Oh, look at this. And I, and I watched my kids being hooted as they walked out of the student organization meeting where they'd been not recognized. And so I wrote a letter and said, I I can't accept your praise and your award until you accept these kids as full members of the institution and they can, and they can be in a recognized organization. But, but the university's changed remarkably since then as has the world. Um, Okay. What else? So, so you're teaching um, children of rubella, and you're learning how to do that. Can you yeah. fast forward and tell me what your job was when I was a student? Sure. There was a there was a time oh five 
six years after I got there, when somebody said, you work really, the kids really like you in the theater department. Will you be the summer advisor for kids who are coming in and wanting to major in theater and, and see if you can also drum us up some business, get us some more majors. <laughs> and so I went over and I was the summer advisor and there were, you know, there were like 15 kids or 20 kids maybe coming through saying maybe they wanted to major in theater. We weren't recruiting them. We weren't going out looking for them. Uh, uh, but I would start, I'd finish my advising for a day and see two or three kids, and then I'd go get all the folders for the next year's, or the next day's group of kids coming through, and I would look through to see if any of them had done theater. And then in the morning or the afternoon, when they all showed up in the group, I'd say, uh, who is uh, this person or that? Regina Taylor. Regina Taylor happened to be a young woman who was coming to major in journalism, who had done some theater in high school. And I said, Regina, just come and talk to me. And uh, Regina came <laughs> and talked to me. And Regina Taylor, do you know who Regina Taylor is? Playwright? Yeah, yeah. Actor. Yes. But she's a remarkable woman of the theater. And she's also was a really good journalism student, but she kind of did both and put them all together and just sort of one class at a time. But I kind of found her that summer. And so that was sort of the beginning of my recruiting, recruiting kids who were already coming to SMU and maybe luring them into a theater class. <laughs> you uh, were you were secretly recruiting. Yeah, I was secretly recruiting. <laughs> Did you get any, like, business majors? Anybody. Anybody who'd done a little bit of theater and looked interesting and looked smart. I, I went after, uh, about three years into this one year, all of a sudden we had 43 incoming theater majors, mostly through my efforts to go find them. And I began to also begin finding out locally where the schools were. And we were already doing pretty well there. And we realized we needed to start, auditioning kids and selecting kids to come in here instead of just stealing them in, instead of just yeah just having the instead of having whoever showed up at SMU and stealing a few from inside we began going out and recruiting them and that meant we had to audition and go through an audition admission process and it took a few years to get that going but we were one of the very first schools that began doing that. Um, at the same time, our theater department, uh, Burnett Hobgood and Jack Clay, got us in a group called the League of Professional Theater Training Programs. And we had put together a pretty interesting faculty then. I mean, really some fine theater teachers. But there was no organized recruiting in the country until all of a sudden we were in the same club with Juilliard and NYU and Carnegie Mellon and Boston oh. and and on and on and on. Really good schools. We were the only one in the Southwest. And so suddenly recruiting got easier because we could align ourselves with that club. And that made setting up auditions. The league had auditions in New York, Chicago, San Francisco, I think, and maybe L.A. And 
we expanded that and began to go into areas, Florida, which I thought was a hotbed with lots of schools down there yeah. and and not as many training programs in Florida for the Florida State was just beginning. Um, Georgia, because it was a hotbed for SMU. SMU got lots of Georgia kids. And then I just looked at other places like, where would I like to go? I'll go to Minneapolis. I'll go to, you know, because I sort of knew Minneapolis. And gradually, slowly, the theater recruiting began in earnest. Um, the school got a huge amount of Meadows Endowment money at a certain point, And suddenly, we had financial aid in the art school. Hmm. That made everything possible. You can't go out and recruit if you don't have money to bring kids in who can't afford a very expensive school. And I initially worked with a man named Bill Lively, who oversaw all the recruiting and really built it. Uh, it was a time in the country when performing arts high schools were happening. He went to every performing arts high school in the country. When he left, there was a big hole there in terms of who's going to take it over. I was sort of his second in command because I did the theater recruiting and I traveled with him all the time. And so I took over as the associate dean and I was suddenly in charge of recruiting for everybody, for dance, oh. for music, for theater. And I did that for a long, long time, that associate dean recruiting. So you were recruiting at a period when you had to Tell people who SMU was. You had to convince them. Well, and you had to, if you were in the Northeast, you had to say you had to say yes. Kennedy was killed in Dallas, but that was quite a while ago. And you know we're not killing Yankees now, so you can take a look at it. <laughs> well, I'm thinking about fast forwarding to a period where theater is a thing that kids will get training for at their high schools, and they'll get private tutors just to get yep. ready for their college auditions. And SMU is yep. a competitive school for that. So if you fast forward from stealing and then going and finding, and then you enter this period of recruiting that is, um, they've come to you and now you're culling through them? Right. What was the thing you were looking for when you were on your side of the table and you saw so many 18-year-olds? I, I always, I like to think that it's like, like I'm adopting kids for the family. And I'm just looking for really interesting kids to be in my family. And every once in a while, you know, I would sit with two other people looking at auditions, and I'd say, I really like that kid. And the other two would say, that kid is trouble. And I'd say, that's why I like him. <laughs> you, know, it's, uh, you know, most of the serious big mistakes in the program were me really pushing for someone who was trouble or we're being conned by somebody who wasn't the way they appeared to be in the audition. But you do, you don't always hit a winner with everybody you take. And sometimes it's just like, sometimes the personalities of the kids you take don't work well together. Yeah. So you get some classes that are beautiful they work well together. There are leaders and there are followers and, and there are directors and actors and designers and, and, and you've got a whole theater company. Other times, 
they can't wait to graduate and get out into the world away from these crazy people they're in class with. You don't have many classes like that, but every once in a while, there's a class that just doesn't click. And that was, you know, you look at that and go, how did we do that? How did, we, how did we put them together? That was my class, Charlie. I don't know. I think you were in a couple of different classes. I think one of yours was really good and one of yours was not so good. Were you in sort of bridging two different classes? Yeah, I was with my age, but we my class um, used to call ourselves the, the class of misfit toys. No oh, one knew yeah. what to do with us. Yeah, no we one knew what to do. And that's, that's very unusual, but, you know, it's theater. And so, you know, you, you are dealing with people who are unique. Uh, and sometimes the unique is really going to work for them on stage and, and not so much in the classroom. So your official job was you recruited and then also you taught a class for non-majors and you had a bunch of different official hats. But a lot of us viewed you as having a lot of unofficial responsibilities. Mm, yeah. How did you view your your unofficial job at Meadows? I know how well, I viewed it, but I want to hear how you viewed it. I, I, you know, the fact that I wasn't teaching in those later years majors was really a positive thing. I was kind of someone they could talk to about stuff going on in classes. And I had a perspective because I wasn't their teacher. Yeah. So I wasn't saying, oh, yeah, you're blah, 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 in class, and boy, I treat you the same way. I would be talking, I'll listen to you, and I'll make some suggestions, and then you're on your own. Um, but, but I would at least listen. And sometimes I was able to make suggestions in faculty meetings about some things are getting out of control, and we need to kind of calm down. So I, I was someone who could kind of intercede for the students and for the faculty with the students hmm. and kind of calm things down. I, someone told me once that I, I, within the theater department and the faculty, that I was the one with a lot of common sense. Now, hmm. <laughs> knowing myself, I have never been accused of being long on common sense <laughs> until I got in the theater faculty and I realized, oh, you know, in this club, I maybe do have a different perspective than some of them. But but I was always sort of a, uh, I don't know, a champion of the student. I was always there for them to come with issues. Um, yeah, I would call you, common sense is a fine word for it, but I would call it like a, I don't know, an, an emotional sense, a, a familial sense. Mm. Like, as you're talking, I'm thinking about how you created little theater families with each class. And if that's the case, mm. then we had professors who were like the parent that we were desperate to please and prove ourselves to and who would decide oh, yeah. if we got our allowance yeah. or not or if we were grounded. And then yeah. you would be the parent who had a tremendous amount of influence on that other parent, but would listen to yeah. us and maybe advocate that, you know. Well, I, you know, I also, I also think uh, uh, as far as that family thing goes, as we hired faculty, I was always interested in, are these people going to be good with the kids? 
are they going to be positive uh, role models and supporters of student, students who are very often going through very difficult times in their life as far as their artistic growth and their sense of their future and, and uh, their place in the department and are they growing and are they wasting money? And, and families did not always love students being in theater programs and, yeah. and going on. Yeah. So that's, that's all I, that's all I know about that family thing. But I, I agree with you. I, picked kids thinking about creating a family yeah you're the kids you're the kids you're making a family out of are 18 years old and you get to watch them you're you're a part of the daily lives of a bunch of artists who thought they were adults already from the years of 18 to 22 yeah what was it like working with people who are right on that precipice of figuring out how to be adults and artists in the world really exciting and really scary it's just like your own kids. It's just like your own children. It's no different. You know, the the kid who calls me from jail, sweet kid who got drunk and he was in the Highland Park jail wrapped in a blanket and nothing else, and I had to bail him out. Um, you know, it's like, oh, my God, he's like, my own kid. Uh, and I, I was called so many times to perform that function. Um, <laughs> there was no one else for them to call. So Charlie would do dad uh, or mom or whatever they needed at the time. And that was more times than I can tell you. Wow. Yeah. I didn't think, boy, I didn't think of, I didn't think of that story at all. Can I go to my notes and move on now? Um, yeah, we can. Yeah. I, I wanted to, you you were such an important part of majors, of theater majors' lives at that really pivotal moment. Like when I was asking people, um, told people I was interviewing you, everyone got a look on their face and went, Charlie, as if they had the most special relationship with uh, you. Oh, isn't and that they, wonderful? They were the only person oh, wow. who had that special relationship with you. Well, you know, the neat thing about uh, like Facebook or something or, or traveling around the country and meeting with a group of students in places is that those kids would share those stories with me. Hmm. And I was a part of their story. And I never, I, I didn't always realize that until much later on when I, when they would tell me things like that, that I was a part of their story. And, and one of, uh, one of your friends said, any memorable moments when you told kids they were admitted to the theater department? Yes. And it's like, no, no, not memorable then. Because I didn't consider that a done deal at all. To me, the memorable moment came when the parents said, yep, I, I think now we can afford this. That was... Right. So you're referring you're referring to the phone calls you would make to students who were admitted to the theater program and you would yeah, call them. Yeah, I would either... call them and say, you're admitted, you're admitted. And some of them were, some of them were, no, thank you very much. And then they'd hang up and scream and yell and jump around the room. Others would scream and yell and jump around the room as they called them. But, but <laughs> that was not the phone call that was important to me. The phone call that was important to me was when they or the parents said, yep, 
we can work that out now. We can afford it. And you would not believe the kinds of things we had to go through. And it wasn't negotiating. It was helping them figure out a way to afford it. And I had so many kids, I can't tell you. The worst ones were when I had to call the parent and the parent said, okay, we're going to take out a second mortgage in their house. And I said, nope, you can't do that. You can't afford this school. Where else are they admitted? Let's work on Webster or or University of Texas or Oklahoma, and let's see what that reality is. Because you can't afford this. You can't take out a second mortgage on your home to send your kid to college. And I would make that decision for them. Wow. And that's painful. And sometimes, you know, the mother would finally go, I didn't want to tell you this, but I lost my job. And I'd say, fantastic. <sighs> now we could get somewhere. Now I can get you a financial aid package. But people don't want to talk about sad stuff, scary stuff, or financial problems. Yeah. That's very private with most human beings in the world. And they didn't, I mean, who was I? And so I became an integral part of many people's family lives because I would help them with those financial problems. And uh, and that was like magic. That was magic. Jim Crawford wrote something on that little thing he put on Facebook about tell them about the kids that you worked with who we didn't admit. And it was the same thing. I would... I would have a kid I really liked and parents I really liked, but we didn't take them. And I, I'd call that they'd get the letter and then they'd call me and say, oh, we're so sad. And I'd say, okay, where are they admitted? Oh, that's a really good school. No, don't go that to that school because they'll give you a financial aid package and then they'll take the whole thing away in your sophomore year and you'll be mm. screwed. And so I would work with them and work with them and I'd make probably as many calls kids we didn't take as kids we did take and why charlie why would you do that because they're kids who are trying to go to school and their parents have the same problems as the ones we took i mean because hmm. they're people you know i don't know so what else i think we're done <laughs> we have five more minutes charlie i have five more minutes of your time okay so in addition to being such an integral part of theater majors' lives, you also made sure to teach a class that was for non-majors. Yes. And can you tell me what you learned from working with non-majors? Well, I I learned that there's an audience, and that that's why we're doing it all. And when I worked with the theater students who came in as TAs, some of them were incredibly snotty about the audience. Not most of them. Most of you, you were one of my TAs. And, I and was. You were on a teaching team that was a wonderful teaching team and not all full of yourself. But it's like, this is the great unwashed. This is the people that we want to work with to teach them how to be an audience member, how to bring who they are to their audience experience. And if they're bored, how to express that. And if they don't understand, how to learn to understand. And if they're offended, how to express that um, and, and to deal with being offended. And, and so it's as important a part of theater training as actor training is. And, and I like them together in a room learning to be 
a part of this theater experience. Uh, a dean that I once had wanted me to put my big lecture class on television so the students could just lay in bed and watch the lecture. And I said, no, nah, you have to fire me <sighs> to get that class and hire someone else. And I won't do that because it's about community and it's about live in yeah. the same place community, not just TV community. It's the same thing about being a theater audience. Yeah, it's, it's really a unique kind of audience experience. And, and I, think, I think Game of Thrones wishes they could get those millions of people together in one room to all mm. complain about the last episode of Game of Thrones. Uh, but they don't have that live audience. They only have people complaining afterwards on mass media. But I, I love them complaining all in the same room all at once and arguing and debating and being tricked hmm. and fooled and, and, and nurtured and loved sometimes. Hmm. That's why I taught The Great Unwashed. I love The Great Unwashed. And I love particularly the back row. Why do you love the back row? I love the, great, the, the back row. The kids who sit in the back row who came in late, who don't have their computers in there to take notes. Some of them have interesting ideas that, that need to be expressed. And I always liked walking up to the back row and hitting them with questions. And, uh, and sometimes sitting in the back row and joking with them and laughing at the front row. And uh, I was always a back row guy myself in college. And so really? the back row is kind of my place. Yeah. <laughs> Except maybe in London for Chekhov, then the front row is the place to go. Anything else? One more question, Charlie, and then you can get okay. back to your wonderful okay. life taking beautiful landscape photographs of <laughs> snow settling on a sunset with like a yeah. beautiful bird flying overhead. I, I like everybody to be my Facebook friend. <laughs> yeah. That's your big plug for this podcast. Everyone go look Charlie Helford up on Facebook. If you remember oh him and haven't added him, go <laughs> message him. <laughs> My last question is this. If all of the students that you've worked with over your, how many years? How many years did you work at Meadows? 43. Over your 43 years of all the students that you worked with and that you advocated for, you championed. Yeah. If we forget everything you ever told us and we only could remember one thing, what would you want that one thing to be? Oh, I used to do this Kurt Vonnegut quote in my classes, and it was something about, um, I am not, oh, what was it? I want to get it right. I, I want them to learn to adapt to the requirements of chaos in the world. The world is chaotic. Education usually gives us order and shows us how to organize life in the world. And I say, now it's chaotic. Let's all learn to adapt to chaos and survive. That's beautiful. Yeah. I think I found it. I texted it to you. Do you want to say and, it? Oh, no. You say it. You quote it. You want me to you, say it? You quote, yeah, I want you to say it. I want you to sign me off and then say it. Okay. Here is Janielle Kastner giving my quote from 
Breakfast with Champions by Clay Flanagan. And this was Charlie Helfert, who was a major champion for me, the only reason I think I was in SMU Meadows and survived it. And here's what he wants us to remember. There is no order in the world around us. We must adapt ourselves to the requirements of chaos instead. Yeah. And I think he also said after that, I am living proof that it can be done. (sighs) That's beautiful. Okay. Love you, dear heart. I love you too, Charlie. Thanks so much for everything. Talk to you you. soon. Bye. Bye.